All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Hey, this is DeRay. Welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we're joined by Dr. Marcus Anthony Hunter, who is Associate Professor and Chair of African American Studies at UCLA. For me, it's really making it so that you have uh, work that demonstrates that Black people are on purpose, that Black people's history matters, that Black people are history, and that that conversation can be had without trying to explain that for white people. And then we have the news with me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as usual. You might hear some background noise in this episode. The four of us record wherever we are in the world. In this one, there's a little bit of background noise. Before we get started, this is a brief message is that, you know, in the past couple weeks, I feel like the internet has just been ablaze every day with like some new thing and everything moves so quick. And people have the right to be opinionated, to ask questions, to express doubt, to express support. All of those things are real, but we at least gotta fight about the same set of facts. And what we all start to lose is where people get swayed by these misinformation and disinformation campaigns. So we actually are fighting, but not fighting about the same set of facts. It's what the Russians did. It's certainly what the police do often. And make sure that you're not contributing to a conversation, that you're fighting about something and just like not on the same page about like the basic facts. Let's go. Hey, y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Samsway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third. Aye, aye, aye. And this is DeRay at DeRay, D-R-A-Y on Twitter. DeRay, I know that you were at Jesse Smollett's concert uh, this week. It was really, really good to see him back on stage, you know, looking as brave and determined as ever. What he said, he was like, I fought back. Let's be very, very clear yeah. um, that, at, that no matter what's being reported about the attack that absolutely happened, that I fought back. And I thought that was a, a really powerful statement. It was good to see him up and at it. I think it was good in the sense too that like what the attackers wanted to do was is like get him off his game make sure that he like wasn't performing at the same level like to to like slow his role and i think it was important that he's like you know i won't let these people sort of take me away from the things that i love uh he sounded great june's diary was there his whole family was there they made a statement before he came out and and he also talked a little bit um and you know we should i i hope that the media comes out soon with like how much the Chicago Police Department has leaked false information about this to sow doubt in the public uh, has been really astounding to watch from a distance. And, you know, this wouldn't be the first time that the Chicago Police Department would have done something like this. We saw what they did with Laquan McDonald. And so, you know, it is this tough situation, uh, as we've talked about in the past, where, like, who do you call for help when you actually need help, especially in, you know, cities where you have the Chicago Police Department is the agency that responds. And how do you trust that agency in cases like this. 
And I think it's a reminder that what it means to be an artist and an activist, especially a black and queer person who is speaking truth to power, is not something that exists without risk. And it is not something that we we can or should take for granted. Every time he speaks out, it is a very intentional and very real act of, of courage. And I think when when these moments of violence happen, it's so jarring for people because we almost expect that in 2019, people will be able to speak about issues of justice without suffering any repercussions to their personal or professional selves. And it has me thinking a lot about safety, courage, and not taking for granted people who don't otherwise have to use their platform in the way that Jesse does. You know, one of the things I think is actually really powerful coming out of this situation is that when Jussie made his first statement, first of all, he gave it to Essence Magazine, which I really appreciated him going directly to a black outlet. But one of the things he said was, not only am, am I okay and are they not going to win, we have to remember that LGBTQ people are under threat every single day. And these kinds of attacks happen to LGBTQ plus folks who are not famous and you never hear the news about them. Their names never trend. And we have to recognize that we have to fight for and with them too. I really appreciated that perspective that he gave us, even as the person who had faced this assault. And there was a, a transgender woman of color named Pinky um, who had faced an assault the next day. Um, and I saw lots of trans activists on my timeline reminding us like, to keep that same energy that we had for Jesse in, in facing down what happened to her as well. And so I appreciated that perspective that he gave us. I know that Jesse is someone that we'll continue to hear from a lot more, um, and I am grateful for that. I will tell you who I want to talk less, though, is Howard Schultz. Like I want Howard, billionaires are the real victim Schultz, to have several seats I feel like this is going in all the wrong directions. Yes, we should have more than a two-party system. Yes, we should be hearing from lots of voices. But billionaires are not really the unheard in our society. <laughs> They're not marginalized or silenced in ways that like other people are when they talk about third parties and 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 trying to make sure their voices are heard. And there I I in my opinion, he has been so distracting from so many of the things that that really matter in this race. And it's a reminder that as we're seeing more progressive proposals to actually begin redistributing some of the immense unearned wealth that has accumulated at the very top of society and redistributing that into education and healthcare and providing you know, free college, the rich are mad and they are reacting. And I think this is one of many reactions. We've seen sort of Bloomberg as well, another billionaire sort of hint that he might run. But there's a lot of people with a lot of money who I think are feeling some type of way about actually building an equitable society in which they no longer have a ridiculous amount of money and everybody else doesn't have much at all. It's it's good in a sense that it means that there are serious proposals out there that could actually change some of the power dynamics that have privileged billionaires and that they're reacting to that. Uh, but it's bad to see how much sort of airtime any one billionaire, Howard Schultz of all people who like nobody really knew about, people knew about like Starbucks but didn't know like Howard Schultz by name, but just to see how much attention like this one guy can get just by being a billionaire and announcing that he's running for president and having like no policy proposals and nothing good to say except for criticizing Democrats. What I will say Howard Schultz is exploring, you know, the possibility of a third party candidacy is unearthed, is an opportunity for people to really explore if it is a morally just thing for us to have people with billions and billions of dollars while 21% of the children in this country go hungry every night. Like $1 billion is like a thousand 
million dollars. Like that's not a real number, but like imagine a thousand <laughs> a thousand stacks of one million dollars laid out. That's a billion, like a billion dollars. Like no no one has a need for. I have so many feelings about Howard Schultz, but the other thing that I'll say is that like he had this line that he kept using of like I grew up in the projects. And like, I earned everything I have and people are criticizing me. Isn't this the American dream? And I have, I have a very real issue with (laughs) a white billionaire using the connotations of what we contemporarily understand to be the projects, Mm -hmm. sort of decontextualizing what the projects were at that moment in time where he was living Uh and projecting it to almost try to equate himself with people who grew up in the projects right now. To justify his wealth. I found that to be so disgusting, so horrific. And just another example of how this person is, it seems he's intellectually unqualified because he hasn't put anything forward that's going to actually make the country better. And also is morally devoid of any sense of empathy or moral fortitude. You know, it it is also interesting. I think about, and I don't know how you guys feel about this, but... I really do think that the internet, for all of its deficiencies, has gotten smarter over the past couple of years. Like the conversations people had about Schultz very quickly were just like really strong. People were like, yep, don't want this guy. This doesn't make sense. Like da da da. In a way that like you could see people be like, we just want more details. Like I, I do think whoever runs for president, whoever becomes a nominee, will have to have a response to what do we do with the extreme wealth in this country, that that will actually be a thing that we decide who we support on or not. And this guy has got to go, so. I think that folks who are avid internet users in certain spaces have absolutely not only just gotten smarter, but, like, gotten used to these kinds of more critical conversations. I think I'm worried about all of the spaces and places that do not engage regularly. Not because I think that they are any less smart than the folks who do, but they will have less exposure to a more egalitarian conversation and more exposure to the kind of media that a billionaire, frankly, can buy. That he can get on every channel and talk about whatever he wants to talk about. And that if that ever stops working, that he can just buy the ads that he wants. It is a like a fundamentally different conversation we're having now than we were having, like for example, under the Obama administration about wealth inequality, right? And the content of the proposals are just far stronger. You know, during the Obama administration, it was this argument over getting the rich to pay their fair share, and that was framed as you know we need to raise the marginal, the top tax bracket by like a couple percentage points. It was still in like the 20s range, but we needed to raise it from something like 25 to like 28 percent, and like the whole fight was over that. Right. And then the Republicans wanted to cut the estate tax even lower from what it is. And now we're in a conversation about top marginal tax rates of 70 percent. We're talking about the estate tax rate under uh, Bernie Sanders proposal of 77 percent. Elizabeth Warren's proposal, which over time would impose a massive, massive tax on wealth. So like that's just like a different conversation and and one that I'm I'm happy that we're actually having because it's one that that can actually deliver results in terms of addressing inequality in a way that like the proposals that were on the board before this like simply just would only make a tiny difference. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Pod Save the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small. And we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Guys, it's been a rough year going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst but we have a better idea for you which is pick out something from the crooked store the store is stocked with tons of new merch it's perfect for the spring and classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship depending on how things go pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year or a hat celebrating your favorite pod go to crooked.com store to shop So my news today is about a new study on climate change uh, from British scientists. And this study actually blew my mind. They found that a period of time in the early 1600s called the Little Ice Age, uh, which was a time that in the historical record uh, was characterized by unnaturally cold temperatures. You know, the rivers in London were frozen. Uh, Folks were, you know, experiencing Uh, what they called like a a dramatic difference in in temperature. And what these scientists were able to show was that that climate change was actually produced by the genocide of indigenous populations in the Americas. Following the introduction of Europeans to the Americas in the 1500s and 1600s, that wiped out 90% of the indigenous population. Uh, And as a consequence, huge areas of land, uh, roughly the size of the country of France, were left untilled. So there was all this farmland that had been produced and cultivated by indigenous populations. uh, And following the genocide, there simply weren't enough people around to upkeep that land. And so as a consequence, vegetation and and plant life took over that land uh, and essentially produced a climate where uh, a lot more carbon dioxide was being taken out of the atmosphere by all of this new plant life. As you know, plants eat CO2, essentially. They absorb CO2 as part of photosynthesis. Uh, And so this is sort of like the reverse of what we're seeing in conversation about climate change today, where there's too much carbon dioxide. This was, there was not enough carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, uh, which led to a similar effect of impacting the climate across the globe. Uh, And so this is a finding that genocide produced climate change in the 1500s and 1600s, sort of another implication of all of the bad things that we have heard and read about having to do with colonization. This is sort of another impact compounded from all of that. 
So I shouldn't have been surprised by this, but I was like, wow. <laughs> if you would have told me a week ago that colonization not only triggered all of those things, but triggered in part great climate change that this country existed, I would have said that's a bit of a stretch. But this is how much evil and greed actually shifts the face of the planet. And there are going to be lots of people who will never see this study, who when they do, will never believe that it is real. But we cannot overemphasize how much people living beyond their fair share and succeeding in taking and stealing what does not belong to them and grabbing far more than they actually need legitimately affects everybody. I never considered what it meant to have not enough CO2 which is almost kind of counterintuitive to the way that we we have been sort of trained to understand what global warming is and what climate change is. But like once you sort of recalibrate your brain to the to the science of it, like intuitively it makes a lot of sense. It's it's like we always say, you know, we always talk about the sort of contemporary manifestations of of environmental justice and the relationship between different facets of uh, environmental degradation and how that impacts certain communities and this is, you know, 4 or 5 centuries old example of that. The only thing I'll add is is that it was interesting because in the study they call this the great dying. And I thought that was like a fascinating way to to just like describe uh, what genocide does to like more than people, but like to the entire ecosystem. And, you know, it's interesting how in this moment people talk about climate change and climate science is like sort of a hoax. So like people are just like up in arms and da da da. And this was such a good historical touch point about the impact and what it means. So a particularly tragic story came to be last week when a 22-year-old woman named Malaysia Goodson actually fell to her death on the subway stairs in New York City. She fell down the stairs while she was trying to carry her one-year-old daughter, Riley, inside of her stroller. Uh, she stumbled down the stairs, and now we know that Malaysia had a pre-existing condition, and the combination of that condition and the fall is what led to her death. But it brought up a particularly dangerous point about the lack of accessibility in public transportation. Uh, this is something that disability activists have been talking about for a while. And when this story came out, I also saw a great deal of mothers say this had been their experience, that they have had to carry strollers up and down the stairs by themselves, that there have not been adequate ways for them to be able to access public transportation in New York City and beyond with that additional burden. What we know to be true about New York City is that there are 472 subway stations across the region, but only a quarter of them have elevators. And often the elevator that exist are out of order. And this actually reflects data from around the country. There are nearly 2 million people with disabilities, according to the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights. 560,000 of them never leave home because of transportation difficulties. Over half a million people. Adults with disabilities are actually twice as likely as those without disabilities to have inadequate transportation. So this tragedy has... Uh, opened up a conversation that lots of people have been trying to have for a long time. And this is not the fault of policy. The Americans with Disabilities Act does exist and has existed for a while. This is an issue of compliance that many of our cities and municipalities are actually not keeping up with what the law states. And we've had that law for over 20 years. So there's really no excuse for the fact uh, that this is still a problem. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, on the internet, the, the New York subway has almost become this sort of like funny meme, you know, people make 
make jokes about it and like, you know, the train never comes and the elevator doesn't work. And, and, you know, humor is fine. Humor is how people navigate difficult situations oftentimes. But, but I, I appreciate you bringing this up because this is like a very real issue impacting people. And in this case, in, in the most extreme and, and fatal of ways. And according to the NYU Rudin Center, uh, in 2015, there were 14,092 outages that occurred on subway elevators in New York City for an average of 53 outages per elevator that year. I think about when my wife was pregnant and how she used the elevator rather than, you know, taking the stairs. I think about when I'm with my child and, you know, we were in the stroller um, with all the snow we had in D.C. Thankfully, we were in stations where the elevator was working and that had elevator accessibility. But I think if I had to try to carry a stroller up or down stairs that were that were full of ice. And I think about people who have multiple kids who like have to carry a stroller and also hold a, a child's hand. And, and, and so it just creates a lot of dangerous scenarios that simply don't have to exist. You know, if Howard Schultz really wanted to help, he would let mm. his taxpayer money pay for mm. some infrastructure change that would allow it so that we didn't have 53 outages per elevator per year in New York City and elsewhere. Mm, Clay, you preaching today. Say that. Well... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. From the pulpit yeah. of Howard. <laughs> uh oh. Uh oh. Uh oh. Yeah, I mean, you know, living in New York City, you know, I can attest to how ridiculous the subway system is, and I am privileged in many ways. And, you know, for folks with disabilities, folks who um, are carrying strollers, it is infinitely more difficult. And it's just like it doesn't have to be this way. Like you travel. To other cities, you travel to other countries. You know, I'm thinking about when I went to Hong Kong and seeing the infrastructure there and like the subway system in New York and in so many cities across the country, the infrastructure is simply just like generations behind uh, where other countries are right now. Uh, and there's like no excuse for that, right? There's, it's just a failure to actually invest in uh, upgrading the infrastructure, installing modern elevators, building a system that is worthy of the people that it serves. And, you know, I learned in reading this article that there is actually a plan uh, to upgrade the subway system uh, to improve its accessibility. Plans called Fast Forward, and it calls for increasing the rate of elevator installations uh, to more than 50 stations in the next five-year capital plan, uh, from 19 currently. So from 19 to 50 stations uh, having elevator installations. Uh, and that would add enough elevators to the subway system by 2025 that no rider would be more than two stops from an accessible station. The problem is that that plan costs $40 billion over 10 years and has not been funded. So again, like it has not been funded. So, you know, simply we're not making the investments that need to be made to actually make the system accessible uh, and to address all of the other problems in the system that, uh, Clint, you mentioned people have complained about uh, for many, many years now. You know, it's interesting. We talk a lot about systems and structures and, you know, I always want to harp on that the administration of the system is like the other part of government that we just don't think about. The bureaucracy really matters. And what does it mean that there is like a set of elevators and a set of like apparatus that like aren't maintained in a way that like allow people to use them. And we think about some of the other stats, it's like only 24% of the subway's 472 stations are accessible via an elevator and half of the city's subways serve neighborhoods that qualify as ADA transit deserts, meaning that they lack a single station that someone using wheels could easily use, which means that about 640,000 New Yorkers who are dependent on these stations, they're essentially inaccessible. 
and that is really wild when you think about it. It's sad too that it takes a tragedy like this for a conversation about accessibility to become a national conversation. Uh, and again, like I do think about like how there aren't enough stories about the bureaucracy and like what it means to maintain the infrastructure that we built in cities across the country. Same things with like highways are crumbling. In Baltimore recently in the past 10 years, we've had a couple streets sink, like the street has just sunk in neighborhoods, which is really wild. Like to me, when I was growing up, that was like only something that happened in California. This is what happens when we don't pay attention to the infrastructure. And it, like Sam said, it costs a lot of money, uh, but we have the money and have to make sure that we prioritize it as opposed to just focusing on short-term gains. For my news, I'm talking about uh, Baltimore. So Baltimore has the highest murder rate among the nation's biggest cities, and it also has one of the most broken and complicated relationships uh, between its police and the citizens who live in those communities. Uh, additionally, the city's enforcement of the marijuana laws has fallen pretty exclusively on African Americans. And as a result of this sort of confluence of factors, recently the city's top prosecutor, Marilyn Mosby, announced that she would no longer pretty much bother with marijuana cases, and she's arguing that it would improve police-community relations and allow law enforcement to devote more time to serious violent crime, the kind that's often going unsolved. So there tend to be two arguments around this issue. One is that people say marijuana isn't linked to violent crime and that it's a waste of valuable resources and it's often racially discriminatory. The second thing is that folks say that letting go of marijuana cases actually makes communities safer because it creates the potential for seeds of trust to germinate in neighborhoods where the chief complaint is that officers are more concerned with stopping and frisking and getting these sort of low-level drug offenders than they are with solving actual violent crimes. And what happens is that communities feel like they're both over-policed for minor infractions and under-protected from violence. And it should be noted that just because you stop arresting people for weed doesn't mean that people are going to automatically start trusting you or that police misconduct or discrimination will go away. Baltimore has been plagued with police scandals over the past few years, really over the decades, most noticeably the case of the Baltimore Police Gun Trace Task Force, whose members robbed residents and planted evidence. There was the body cam videos that appeared to show officers staging the discovery of evidence. And, and you know, the list goes on and on and on. And so this is all to say that this is a, is a positive move, a move many think Mosby should have made before, uh, a move that more big city prosecutors are beginning to engage in uh, and implement in their cities. It should also be noted that the Baltimore Police Department is not digging what Mosby has proposed, and the police chief has said that they have no plans to implement any sort of change with the way that they approach marijuana arrest. But it is a good thing that she is attempting to make sure that less folks are, are being arrested for marijuana possession. But in the larger conversation around mass incarceration, we should also remember that in order to solve mass incarceration, you can't just focus on nonviolent drug offenders. You have to focus on the larger picture of violence and how it manifests itself. Yep. And even with that being said, you know, the police still arrest more people for marijuana possession than all violent crime combined. They, oftentimes when we talk about mass incarceration, we're talking about like the prison population. And it's true that there are you know, particularly at the state level, a larger proportion of people who are incarcerated for so-called violent offenses than for like marijuana possession. But in terms of arrests, like what the police are actually arresting people for, whether or not they end up in prison for it, like marijuana still makes up a huge proportion of what people are arrested for. And so, you know, it's good to see that 
not only in Baltimore, but in a number of jurisdictions now. We've seen in you know St. Louis County under Wesley Bell. We've seen State Attorney Kim Fox in Chicago, uh, Cook County. You know, many different prosecutors now are moving in the direction of decriminalizing marijuana, refusing to charge people, uh, not only for possession, but you know, under Marilyn Mosby, she's actually proposing to go further than that and not charge people for uh, distribution or intent to distribute based on the quantity alone. So, like somebody would have to have like plastic bags or like scales in order to be charged with intent to distribute, which you know, again, I think. You know, even that, there could be progress made on. But it's good to see prosecutors stepping up. I'm hopeful uh, that the police will eventually stop arresting people for marijuana if it's not being charged. I- I'd love to dig into some of the data around in jurisdictions, cities and counties, where prosecutors are not prosecuting people for marijuana. Uh, are we seeing fewer arrests for that? Uh, and in, under what circumstances are police actually less likely to arrest people, even if it is not going to be charged in the end? I think there are two really good lessons for all of us to be reflecting on with this kind of news. Number one is that if we decide to set a trend, we can. To both Sam and Clint's point, we have seen more and more prosecutors come around to the idea of not charging uh, for nonviolent drug offenses, right? Marijuana and others. That is because of the work that the people have done. That is because of work that organizers, folks in communities, and that folks on social media have done to actually make this conversation trend in all the right ways. I think the other lesson that is relevant here is a lesson about discretion uh, and the power of the vote. It is great to get someone of color or someone from a marginalized community who does not represent the traditional folks who sit in elected positions. It is even better when those folks bring the perspective of the communities that they serve and that they are from. It is even better when that perspective leads them to take the kind of brave action, discretionary action that Marilyn Mosby and Kim Fox and others are taking right now. But what's going to be most important about that is that that kind of discretion actually becomes habitual. And instead of these kind of choices being the exception to the rule, they become the rule. We have to make sure that prosecutors are not simply saying, well, my job is to punish people and they follow the rules as they've been laid out in tradition for the last few decades, but that they actually think critically about the power they have with the discretion that they can show about what to charge and what not to charge. We have to get to the point where we are electing the kind of people who are brave enough to use their discretion at the community's benefit, so much so that, frankly, it should be an unpopular idea uh, in Baltimore and other cities for the police to continue to maintain the same level of marijuana arrests. I live in Baltimore. It is wild to to think about how much the performance of progress has been happening, but the progress hasn't actually been happening. So when we think about this, I'm, it is good that uh, that Mosby made this uh, change. I'm excited and hopeful. To give some context, though, there were about 363 arrests for marijuana out of 21,900 arrests last year. So, and like the scale, it's a small amount. I think the most interesting thing that she did that I think will probably have the biggest impact, especially immediately, is that she's asking for... Uh, nearly 5,000 convictions to be vacated. And like, I think that actually will be a huge deal to have these things gone off people's records. And Sam, what's interesting about what you said is that they actually, her office will still prosecute distribution. So they are still looking for baggies, ledgers, and scales as things that they'll prosecute. So there's this thing where like, she's not going to prosecute possession, but she has not said that she's not going to prosecute distribution. 
and the police have said that they will continue to make arrests like they've always been making arrests. So there is sort of this weird political game that's happening back and forth between the offices. And remember that in 2014, Maryland actually decriminalized possession up to 10 grams. So there was actually some movement at the state house. Uh, but like you said, Brittany, this is about like discretion. It is about like getting people to use the power they have while we get the system to change writ large. And I'm hopeful about that. I don't know how we move a city like Baltimore if every single apparatus in the city isn't moving. Uh, and we don't see that happening in Baltimore. So it's important that she's making this move. We haven't seen the police department do anything mildly progressive. And we certainly haven't seen anything come out of City Hall yet. So uh, hopeful. And certainly while it's progress to see fewer arrests for marijuana in places like Baltimore, I'm reminded that in many states now, it is entirely legal to both possess and distribute marijuana. And folks who are almost entirely white are making billions and billions of dollars doing that. Uh, So the conversation about how police interact with black communities uh, is characteristically different conversation than the experience that folks in white communities in so many places around the country are having with not only not being interacted at all with the police for doing any of these things, but making a whole bunch of money on it. Now, my news is based on an article that was posted on the Marshall Project called When Going to Jail Means Giving Up the Meds That Saved Your Life. And it's about someone who was addicted to drugs. And when he got sentenced to time in jail, he no longer had access to his medication. And that's because in many jails and prisons across the country, uh, medication like methadone or bup, they are even when uh, legitimately prescribed, are banned in prisons and jails because the jails say that they pose safety and security issues. So that was interesting to me. And the whole article is about how uh, he is suing, how other people are actually suing under the ADA, saying that like a denial to uh, the medications is actually denying the fact that addiction is a disability, which some of the cases have been successful. So that is sort of like the, the frame for this. What I didn't know and what I thought was really fascinating is the data says that in the two weeks after release, prisoners are 12 times more likely to die and 129 times more likely to die of an overdose than the general population. This idea of forced abstinence, which is essentially making people go cold turkey because they are incarcerated, leads to a lower tolerance and an increased urge to use. So like, if the goal is to get people off of drugs, this is actually like one of the exact opposite things that you do to people. And remember, when people are jailed, they often haven't been convicted of anything. So this is like this guy was going to have like a 60 day sentence or he was essentially being held for a little bit. Uh, But you think about the people who are in jail for a year or 20 days or 10 days even waiting for their trial. And they still don't they've not been convicted of anything and don't have access to any of their medication or anything to keep them alive or anything, frankly, to help them uh, recover from addiction. Uh, and get off of the substance. And I thought this was like another part of the system that I hadn't thought about what it means to have access to your medications when you are incarcerated at the jail level, like not you haven't been sentenced yet, uh, but at this initial level. Yeah, this just blew my mind because what you've just described, DeRay, is the system of mass incarceration directly contributing to the opioid crisis. It's a situation where folks are in jail, in many cases, because of things like possession of drugs, right, because of things that are linked to having an addiction. And once they're in jail and released, then they're 129 times more likely in the two weeks after release to die from an overdose because of that forced abstinence that they experience behind bars. So when we talk about solutions to the opioid crisis, and many people talk about, you know, law enforcement being an important part of that solution, and, you know, that we should have sentences still on, you know, opioid possession, you know, whether it is 
heroin and fentanyl and all of these other things. Uh, but you know, that's not at all a solution when in the, at the end of the day, it's actually contributing to worsening the very crisis that you sought to address. Right. And so, you know, this is just another reminder that solutions that are carceral uh, are not solutions at all and often make the problem worse. This is an opportunity to reframe the conversation. We talk all the time about addiction as if it is worthy of some kind of moral judgment instead of recognizing that it is both a mental and physical health ailment. And I appreciate that folks with the power to potentially help legislate through litigation and the court system are being creative uh, and thoughtful with how they help reframe the conversation. He also talked about it being cruel and unusual punishment. And again, if we move away from a moral judgment of people with addictions, we can understand this argument as well. And so in this episode, we've talked about disability in two different ways. And I think it's really important for us to expand our own thinking about what disability is and how we can support the people who are living with disabilities. I have been on a personal mission to try to learn and listen much more about disability. And I, uh, I found myself at a conference uh, that I went to simply to do that um, and was told by two of my now very good friends who are disability activists, Rebecca and Valissa, like I am a part of that community as somebody who uh, struggles with depression and anxiety. Uh, and I had never even considered it that way. And I had to make sure that I didn't give myself over to a feeling of shame, uh, but a feeling of empowerment, a feeling of recognizing that I can acknowledge what this is, that I can identify a community that I am a part of, um, and that I can uh, be active in supporting uh, this community that I didn't even realize I was a part of in seeking the kinds of rights that we all deserve. And this is also an opportunity to complicate the way that we can think about recidivism. The way that we think about recidivism is that people will go into prison for a, you know, a so-called violent crime, and then they're released. And if they recidivate, uh, people sort of intuitively assume that You've gone back in for a crime that's equivalent to what you may have done before, but so many people are going back into prison and recidivating because of drug offenses, because of things that are not causing harm to anyone except themselves, which are which is more of a public health issue than anything else. And obviously, people losing their lives to an overdose is the extreme case, but the fact that people leave prison and have not been given the, the tools or the resources with which to navigate or... Uh, sort of distance themselves from their addiction means that they're far more likely to to potentially end up dead. But even if they don't end up dead, a lot more likely to end up back in prison. Uh, and and I think that that's a huge disservice to the idea that prisons are supposed to operate as rehabilitative spaces, even though we know that they largely do not and are places of, of violence in which people become more violent than they were when they uh, went inside. But that's important to consider as we as we think about this as well. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. All right, people. We all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. 
This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. And now my conversation with Dr. Marcus Anthony Hunter, the chair of African-American studies at UCLA. Marcus, it is great. No, Dr. Hunter. Ah. <laughs> that is what I, that, you are Dr. Hunter, aren't you? I am, also known as Dr. Blackness, also known as Analog Boy in the Digital World. Shout out to Erica Badu, analog girl in the digital world. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you from from? I'm from Philly. And you are now at UCLA? Yes. You lead the African American Studies Department? Yes. Talk about your fascination with cities. Like, why is that such an important research topic for you? Yeah, you know, one, uh, I was moved by a UN note a couple of years back where they projected that by 2050, upwards of 80 plus percent of the world's population would be urbanized. And it made me think a lot about how black people get in formation, at least in my understanding of American history, that I started to think, oh, everybody is following a trend that black people just naturally do as a way to thrive and survive, meaning you create, you know, diverse communities that are critically dense in a relatively built part of the environment. And so it was like, oh, we don't tend to call those places cities, but it's just a, it's a very black thing, a city. In your work, what do you want people to walk away with? One of the things I think is super important is that we have a black scholarship that is by black people for black people, um, because I think the audience of the work matters. And a lot of times when you go through a whole bunch of school and you get a Ph.D., you kind of uh, don't realize that you've forgotten about your home audience because you're so focused on, you know, passing something or proving something or demonstrating something that then you produce the stuff about black people that is sometimes unintelligible for the black people you really did it for. And so for me, it's really making it so that you have uh, work that demonstrates that black people are on purpose, that black people's history matters, that black people are history and history makers, that black people are making places, and that that conversation can be had without trying to explain that for white people. Now, we first connected because you have the first recorded use of the hashtag Black Lives Matter on the internet. Yes, I was going to say, go ahead. I am the inventor of hashtag Black Lives Matter, circa August 2012. You are indeed right. And you were gracious enough to reach out to actually inquire about it. You know, it's interesting. What is particularly interesting about it is not only the mythology that's been around the not creation, but also you're somebody who studies the politics of blackness. Mm -hmm. And it seems like in this moment, there's such a conscious effort to like not recreate the same sort of issues around erasure that manifested in the civil rights movement. And you being erased from the creation feels like a, feels like we're sort of just doing the same thing. So I wanted to like talk to you about sort of why you created it. Like what was the impetus behind how you used it on Twitter in 2012 
And then, like, how do you process as, like, a person who actually studies this, not even, like, a sort of layperson like me, um, what is happening with the way you've been erased from the record? Yeah, I would say uh, the first thing that's significant for me and and my initial usage of it is to identify and think about blackness as a political experience. So that uh, when I originally shared it, it was attached to two scholars' work, uh, Alden Morris, the great sociologist at Northwestern, who was reflecting on the civil rights movement and writing about Rosa Parks and the trials that still await black people. And then there was a scholar, Jean Beeman, at Purdue, a great sociologist as well, who had written an article about what it is like to be a first-generation North African origin person in France. And what stood out to me about that was that they were all politically black. Like it was like blackness is this global experience. So I thought to myself, you know, they are demonstrating, you know, something that's really important in the scholarship. And that is that black lives matter and that black life or what it means to be black is also a political experience and not just one based on melanin. I think related to the record, I kind of think of myself as some combination of Claudette Colvin um, and Bayard Rustin. So Claudette Colvin was actually one of the first women to sit on the bus before Rosa Parks. But because she was a single black mother and of a particular hue, she wasn't respectable enough. And so her actual uh, experience and moment of resistance becomes an actual strategy, though she gets displaced from that authorship. And then with Bayard Rustin, who many people are beginning to know about, he was a black gay man who wrote many of the things that, you know, uh, amplified the civil rights movement, was a major uh, advisor to Martin Luther King Jr. But for whatever reason, you know, he's missing from our stories as well. And so I often think about it as like when you... Uh, as much as we think about Black Lives Matter or blackness as uh, comprehensive and inclusive, when people tend to operationalize it, it often means that if you are a black gay man, you don't fit. So it is very easy to put you in the trunk of the black freedom struggle. You know, everybody else gets a seat in a car, but we should get used to riding in the trunk. And I think that my experience around it is just, you know, a reminder that we still have a whole lot of work to do because I'm not necessarily in the same disadvantaged space as, say, a, a Claudette. Colvin. I was a Yale professor at the time. You know, so people think of that as high visibility. And I think that that says a lot about who we collect and who we honor, who we represent and who gets included. And the fact that, you know, you are the first person and we're just having this conversation six years later says everything about the work that still remains internally for black people as a political struggle. I always think about like our age group as like sort of living through the protest, but then there's a set of people like you who are living through it and teaching it to people mm-hmm. younger. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm always curious about like, what is that like? So I'd love mm-hmm. to know like, what has it been like, or how have you seen the arc of teaching about sort of the protests and, and movement stuff in real time and not just in theory? Yeah, you know, I think this goes back to the hashtag Black Lives Matter uh, point as well, because because I am not here to, you know, cast any uh, bad judgment or bad light on uh, the folks who are noted as the folks who created it. But it, what does happen in a classroom is that uh, many of the students kind of think about activism as completely anti-academic. So for me, it's been one of these very interesting things to say that part of why I think correcting some of the stories important is to re-illustrate to many black students, uh, white students, students of all walks of life, that, you know, there is activism to be done from a place called the academy. And I think what happens in my experience 
experience is that when Black Lives Matter comes up, one, on one side, you see it as people going, this is about the streets. Like, people are really out there doing the work, and so school is irrelevant. You know, y'all are the people who are not doing the work. And part of what I've seen is that then the academy tries to absorb it as a way to speak back to students saying, no, we know this too. You know, when we leave these jobs, we live in the world. And I kept thinking, but I invented it. It always already started off as an intellectual academic site. It always has its origin points there in the same way that intersectionality is tethered to Kimberly Crenshaw in the academy, in the same way that double consciousness is tethered to uh, W.E.B. Du Bois in the academy. I would say the same thing. So part of what I wind up doing in my teaching is trying to illustrate those connections, because I do think that we do danger when we think that, you know, when students are made to believe that social activism has no intellectual genealogy or intellectual heft behind it. They just think that it's a bunch of people making noise they either agree with or they don't, but they don't see it as a part of a long history toward freedom. People sort of talk about neoliberalism a lot, and I'm not always sure people have defined it who use it, Mm -hmm. especially like on the internet. And as somebody who studies these issues, how would you like help us access the idea of neoliberalism and sort of its challenges? I think about it a lot as making everything into a market and everything becomes a part of a market with the idea of the free market underneath, which is what makes it even more pervasive and dangerous, is that people think that the market is democratized. So everybody has a shot and there's some meritocratic outcome where if you are a winner, it's because you deserved it and you earned it, when instead there are all of these sort of capitalist models behind it. So I would say for most people, it's just understanding that everything becomes a marketplace. So how neoliberalism works is that, oh, oh, well, everything is a site to make money and we shouldn't block that. And we just, then making money will help create competitive conditions. And those competitive conditions will help then win out the winners and help bear out the losers. And that is a very dangerous mindset. I got into this work, obviously, over the killing of Mike Brown and have spent so much time trying to think about the police and and sort of state violence. I'd love to know, like, what are your thoughts, whether it's at the sort of city level which is what you study most recently, or if it's at like the macro level, like if you had a magic wand, what do you think the things that we should be fighting for or like paying attention to would be? I think one of the major things is a more radical sense of reparations. You know, one of the original things to really return to before you get to this sort of neoliberal model, you have to have slavery as a industry and an infrastructure that until we actually come to Jesus about what we owe, you know, slaves and former enslaved peoples and generations that come from them, I think that everything from there is a minefield that you have to go back to, because I think that, you know, slavery requires for you to think about not only the stripping away of freedoms and resources and access, but that you have to give it back in order to have that person be a fully enfranchised citizen. And you have to do it at no cost to the person. And right now, everything costs everything. So, for example, going back to my class, when I teach it to them, one thing I say to them is in a world where everything costs something, the price to change your mind is still free, you know, Mm -hmm. and still radical. So it's also just to say that I think a big part of it is about mindset changes, you know, that one, if we're telling all of the children that they need to go to college, we also ought to be telling the colleges that they ought to make it affordable for all of the children. We're not saying that you can't make enough money to pay people or to do your business, but at some level where you're continually looking at schools where the coach of the football team makes more than the president of the school, what a world we live in, where 
where the athletes are both students and athletes, if they get injured, they don't even know if they're going to get their education. That is a dangerous place to be in. That is the reality that many people are in in a neoliberal academy. Do you study reparations? Yes, I've become a student of reparations beginning. So in my first book, Black City Makers, I discovered that there were a whole bunch of local black banks that collapsed in the 1920s in Philadelphia before the great stock market crash in 1929. But as I was doing the story to figure out who the banking entrepreneurs were and who these black guys were, I discovered the Freedmen's Bank, which was one of the only policies that Abraham Lincoln signs as a policy measure in addition to the Freedmen's Bureau Act to redress enslavement. So he had the mindset that if you had a national bank for black people, that would go a long way in bringing black people into the fold as fully realized citizens. And so when I started to do that, I found the records, and which, by the way, are being kept by the Mormon church, which I think is such an interesting, strange bedfellow over that particular data. But when I discovered that bank... How did the Mormon church get them? I think because they were the ones who were interested in the actual data, because the data they even have on it is, is limited in many ways. So it's just to say it was a black bank and a whole bunch of black people had money in it so much so that by current estimates it's over a billion dollars that this bank had that was all black money and it collapses after the congress changes the charter to give out credit and loans because the credit and loans only go to white customers. So you have white people leveraging new debt based on black people's actual assets, and the bank closes just after they make Frederick Douglass the president. And I thought to myself, why don't I know this history? Why don't I know anything about this? So I've been stuck in the sort of like uh, black reconstruction period, as Du Bois teaches us, and been thinking about that as a way to really root in conversations of reparations. Outside of the, you know, one of my professors is Manny Marable, who is a longtime historian of reparations. But just to say that I'm really thinking about it in a way that is deeply tethered to the failures of Black Reconstruction and the failures to really think about, you know, things other than either all Black people get is a bank in Liberia, you know, and nobody's ever heard of the bank anymore. And no Black person you talk to right now in America necessarily wants to live in Liberia. So that says everything about what our reparations conversations need to be about. How do you make sure that the Academy doesn't like reproduce the same sort of elitism that we say needs to be dismantled in larger society? Like, what does that look like as as somebody who like continues to be in that space and continues to fight for justice at scale? Yeah, I think that is about making sure that you share whatever it is that you know with as many people as possible. You know, so one of the first ways just as an individual scholar is, you know, giving community talks, you know, being in a community, going. I remember when I did my first book, I was at the public libraries talking about it. So also making sure that you don't have to have a college ID to have access to the professor or the professor's information or the research that they have. I think the other thing is really about uh, encouraging people to think about, you know, resistance work and freedom work as also needing always to have an intellectual foundation. You know, we don't just need all of the people. We need all of the people who have an elevated consciousness about the conditions and the situation so that when a table is finally formed and everybody's able to sit and talk about freedom, we know it's going to be more inclusive than it's been in the past. You know, I think a lot of student activism has produced things like women and gender studies, LGBT studies, African-American studies. All of these kinds of uh, ethnic or minority studies departments are a reflection of student activism and the power that students have to change, you know, intellectual production and what classes get taught on college campuses. And so I think that's also another thing. 
And what do you say to people who have protested, who have worked, who have chanted, who have been to meetings, and things haven't changed as quickly or at all in the way they wanted them to? What do you say to those people? Yeah, I would say that, you know, because the future is unknowable, you just have to know that you're making a good contribution. You know, I think that, you know, you can't get caught up in the immediate outcome. So I would say to all of the people who are feeling exhausted by the work, your exhaustion is not a delusion. You are exhausted. It is very hard. But I also would say that if you're convincing yourself that it is not doing anything, then that's the Jedi mind trick of it all, that it's working on you, because that's what you know, people who are in the status quo as is what have us believe that our stuff does nothing. But you forget about the little boys and girls who watch you put up your sign. You know, if you think about being a little kid, I remember watching my grandmother putting together a sign, you know, uh, up with the hope, down with the dope. You don't think about <laughs> it in real time as a contribution. I don't think she was like, I'm writing this sign in front of my grandson so I can teach him something in this, this very explicit, intentional way. But I think we also don't think about ourselves as representations, as role models for others people that even if you feel like your work is not doing anything, somebody is really looking up to you and is seeing this is the work that I need to do. So if only for that reason, I think you continue with it. And what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stay with you? I remember uh, the political scientist and mentor for me, Kathy Cohen, said to me once when I was reading stuff that I didn't like by people, and she would say, you know, approach it from a place that most people are trying to do good work. Even if the work is wrong, you know, even if the work isn't right, even if the work is right, like all of these different things that could be wrong with it, but that the spirit of generosity you should have when you're listening to people who you don't agree with, you know, when you're disagreeing with somebody that you do it from a place of love and a place of openness, because ultimately that's how you want people to receive you, because you're going to say things that people don't agree with. You're going to say things that people think is inaccurate and you want them to receive it that way. So for me, that has always stayed with me to understand that people, most people are trying to do good work, especially when they're doing resistant work, when they're doing critical work, that they're trying to do good work and to approach things that way. Well, thank you so much. We consider your friend of the pod and hope to have you back soon. Oh, I, I look forward to it. Thank you so much, DeRay. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Here's a quick and free way to finally stick to your New Year's resolutions. Start listening to podcasts on Spotify. With more than 150,000 podcasts, including many of the world's most popular self-improvement shows, you can learn how to balance a budget, balance your diet, and how to feel balanced while meditating, even while you're also obsessing over when the cat was last fed. All podcasts on Spotify are free. You can even download episodes for those times when you've gone off the grid, you know, to get all that newfound balance in your life. So get the year off right and start listening to podcasts on Spotify.